Welcome everyone to Davos Fingers episode 40. How many Dornishmen does it take to stir a pot? I'm Scatty, we have with us Brooke and Matt as always. Hello. Hey. And we are coming at you with five chapters from A Storm of Swords. Catelyn 4, Davos 4, Jamie 5, Tyrion 5, and Arya 7. That's chapters 35 to 39 of A Storm of Swords, according to a wiki of ice and fire. A uh, quick reminder, as always, we are spoiler-free until the end of the podcast. We've got a special segment at that time. We call it Davos After Dark. Uh, because we get all spoilery and fun uh, talking about theories and our favorite things that maybe you don't know yet up to that time in the book. So, uh, Davos After Dark, listen for the musical jingle. That will warn you to get out if you don't want spoilers. Also, uh, if you want to contact us, suggest topics for future episodes, ask questions, just reach out to us, davosfingers.com. That's our Tumblr site. Email us at wearedavosfingers at gmail.com. Twitter at davosfingers or find us and like us on Facebook. I feel like I jinxed this last time, guys, because I said, I commented about how many great emails we had gotten uh, between the episodes last time, and it dried up. We got, like, no emails. Still lots of great stuff on Twitter and uh, and Facebook, but the email stuff yeah. dried up. Shoot us some emails, guys. We love them. The, the, the just tell us how you're doing. Dry. Yeah, tell yeah. us how you're doing. Just, you know, went to the yeah. dentist today. Yeah. yeah. Had yeah. chicken pot pie. For dinner. Yeah. yeah, I guess you could tell us that. I really appreciate when people send us stuff like Bone Thugs and Harmony being sung by Sesame Street characters. Yeah, that was awesome. We got that on Facebook and on Twitter, and Twitter. from two different Same people. Day. Yeah. yeah, it was awesome. It was gr- it was great to know that when people hear Bone Thugs and Harmony, cro- the crossroads, they think of us. It was great. And we got our first bit of fan art, right? We did. Oh, Natalia so sent great. us. Uh, the, I'm a bastard. Yeah, going all the way back to like episode, episode two. two or something, wasn't it? That was awesome. I'm still giggling. Yeah, about. the premise is John is so obsessed with his lineage that when people ask him any question, his answer is always the same. And she animated it so well. Yes. I'm a In the first panel, his face. Like, John, who are you? The second one is like he turns to the camera office style. He's like, "I'm a bastard." <laughs> yeah, I think of I think of Snuffleupagus sometimes now uh, when when saying that, and and it's also Brooke. It, it was a, a fun light moment at the time, but it's also kind of a theme we've used throughout now, right? That that's mm. just kind of a the way he views the world sometimes through his bastard eyes. But uh, <laughs> anyway, that was a little bit of a departure. Bastard eyes, calling that as a band name. That's not a bad name. I think it'd yeah. be a better song than a band name. Yeah. Anyway, you guys have probably noticed we are uh, several days now into our A Song of Madness uh, bracket breakdown, mimicking the uh, March Madness bracketing going on for the basketball tournament here in the United States. And uh, things are things are getting getting heated as we uh, work through it. So go and vote. Go to the Twitter. We've got uh, contests uh, every day uh, between various characters in A Song of Ice and Fire to see uh, it's basically who you like best, I guess is really what it comes down to. But mm-hmm. uh, yeah, go vote. Go to the Twitter and, and vote if you're interested. Uh, it's been a lot yeah. of fun. So. It's completely subjective. It's just who you personally like best, not the objectively better rounded, more rounded character. Right. Just yeah. pick one. This is, go with it. Yeah. This yeah. is purely uh, just judgment. Yeah. The thing I'm most excited about uh, is just seeing how much flack we get for our rankings and who we ranked where. Yeah, getting the flack for that. I'm also I I am pulling I'm pulling for so many upsets of mm-hmm. book characters that are not in the show. So guys, vote for those book characters. I just want to I just want to see it. I might Ariana. Yeah. 
<laughs> All right. Uh, so uh, that's the end of the uh, the news updates. There. Um, let's actually start the show. Hmm. Yeah. Let's, All right. Let's, let's get All going right. then. Settle down. This is my show. Oh, everyone, it is your episode. Everyone, just take it easy. Yes. Scad, can you please take us away with Catlin? <laughs> I can take us away with Catlin. The words will cut you like valerian steel to a hair. She can't love Jon Snow, but she's sure to let you know where she stands. A devoted mother who married the brother of a dead. Fiance. She's vengeful and hateful, loving and faithful. She's Catelyn, Catelyn Stark. Tully's return to the river. And after essentially a whole book of teasing, Hoster Tully joins his forebears. He's laid in a boat with kindling, enrobed in his mail, and he's shoved off. It is up to Edmure to fire an arcing arrow into the boat from the shore. This is a difficulty class of... 10 at the start, but it keeps getting harder. He, he, and, and oh he keeps... man, I was so embarrassed for him. Yeah. He, he fails thrice before finally giving up and thrusting the bow at his uncle. Frustrated, embarrassed by his failure, an inauspicious start to his lordship, I dare say. The blackfish, though, drains the three ball immediately, like Chewie's revenge on Kylo Ren. And... I don't know. I mean, the, the shot at that point was extremely difficult. Very far away, uh, boat drifting into the fog, barely viewable, <laughs> and uh, he just drains it. Uh, anyway, Catelyn reflects that there is no news regarding Brienne or Jamie. Man, she's anxious about this. Is Jamie going to make it uh, to King's Landing? That's the only hope she's got uh, for her daughters coming back. The phrase have also come. Uh, in fact, uh, helped with the uh, the burial rites there. They didn't come for the funeral, but it's convenient. <laughs> it isn't Walder, though, that came, but Fat and Lame Lothar. A sign of disrespect is perceived by some, but Rob handles it gracefully. They seek counsel with Rob that very night to settle this matter of the broken betrothal and the questionable loyalty. Rob grants an audience, but first wants his mother's counsel. But it feels more like confession, though. From feeling of remorse about the phrase, to regret about not getting Sansa back in exchange for Jamie feeling regret about the battles that he's won and how he should have, I don't know, transitioned those battle wins into more benefit for his cause overall. But it's all a prelude to the Heartbreaker. Sansa isn't coming home. She's married to the Imp. Cat, of course, feels betrayed. A promise once transmitted to them from the Imp via Cleos Frey has now been broken. The reader might remember that Tyrion swore that if Jaime was returned, he would exchange them for... Uh, for Sansa and Arya. And uh, that's been broken now, according to Kat. Um, so she fears the worst. She feels like she's lost everybody. She can't imagine losing Rob. She thinks she'd have nothing left. So she again entreats him to bend the knee, but of course Rob won't hear of it. It is here we get to a very important difference that's been brewing between Rob and Kat, and one that I think can't be broached. Kat wants peace. Rob wants all Lannisters dead. Not pining for the fjords, but dead. Cat makes one last ditch, eff- ditch effort, insisting that Rob's life has more value than a singer's fodder. In response, he dismisses her. Then comes dinner with the phrase. Ugh. We thought breakfast with Circe was bad. Anyway, <laughs> they bring some news. Winterfell is burned. What? Again? No, not again. It just took 500 pages for news to travel in Westeros. The Walder Frey is big and little at the dread fort with Ramsay. 
Uh, it was Theon who burned Winterfell. Some women and, women and children also saved by Ramsay at the Dreadfort. That's the news they get. Precious little else of value comes from the news, but that's what they've received from the phrase regard, uh, and, and, and the Walder phrase there with Ramsay. Now, they get to the meat of this dinner, the terms from Walder. Rob must apologize for breaking his oath and, uh, and breaking the deal to marry one of Walder's daughters. And Edmure will wed Lady Rosalind, the youngest daughter of Walder Frey. And he must do it immediately. Do not choose your own bride in your own time. Do not pass go. Do not collect $200. Do it now. Any delay voids the agreement. Apparently, Walder doesn't like long betrothals. <coughs> Rob, that's on you. <coughs> and also wants to make sure the wedding occurs before Edmure is risked in battle. The phrase are excused, and Edmure passes a goddamn kidney stone out of the lack of respect he's being shown. <laughs> In the end, though, Rob, Kat, and Brynden shame Edmure into agreeing to marry Rosalind sight unseen as amends for his actions in the Battle of the Fords. Battles he won for his king, I might remind the reader. Ugh. He must make amends for now. And that's pretty much the end of the chapter. <laughs> oh. Okay, so as... Like, infuriating as Edmure is, I, there's a part of me that feels that even though Rob is acting like a model king and uh, he's he's doing a great job of brokering this new deal, it's kind of like his responsibility to maybe ditch the Westerlings and everything that makes him happy <laughs> in these desperate times and just take a fray wife, as was promised, instead of making one of his own subjects do something that he wouldn't do himself, which is a mark of a bad king. But uh, on the other hand, it it might seem like a little too little too late. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Blame blame Ned. You know, Ned has instilled in Rob this quote unquote sense of honor, and uh, you you could argue that he's breaking honor by breaking his oath. But he's. Uh, I think they say it in one of these chapters somewhere. Uh, maybe Tyrion's, that Rob has chosen Jane's honor over his own by not shaming her and leaving her behind. Mm. Uh, but, but yeah, I'm, I'm with you. I mean, it's 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 breaking your honor either way, and maybe you should choose the one that doesn't kill your cause completely, and mm-hmm. and make your uncle do something that is not his fault, or to make up for something that is not his fault. Yeah, I kind of get where you're coming from. Yeah. yeah, I think we talked helps, about that yeah. a while ago is how Rob and Brendan seem to jump all over Edmure for a mistake that I argued at least wasn't really a mistake. Yeah. More to cover up, you know, Rob's mess up. Yeah, in fact, I have a, a whole conspiracy theory about that now that that I, that I kind of came up with. So oh. I wonder if... The Battle of the Fords was what Rob wanted. That he wanted exactly what Edmure did. He didn't. It wasn't even a miscommunication or like he doesn't need to know or you know whatever. It was yeah. I actually want Edmure to do exactly what he did. Then he fucked up by marrying a Westerling, and he and his little war council came up with this plan to shame Edmure into thinking he failed in order to get him to help out. A little far fetched. Why? Why? why I totally would he agree with the second part. The first and place. Why what? Sorry. As Matt was saying, <laughs> I agree with the second part as well, but why would he have wanted to uh, delay Tywin in the first place? Not delay him, just that he wanted Edmure to beat him. I don't know that he could have foreseen that that would have caused Tywin to go back home and then win the war against Stannis and 
all of those dominoes falling the way they would, but that he just wanted Edmure to win those battles against Tywin. Not to lure him in, not to... Basically, that that whole plot to lure him in and keep him there was made up after the fact, when after he mm. had screwed up with the Westerlings. I don't know, I don't have a whole lot of evidence, but it's something that popped into my head. Mm-hmm. Hmm. I feel nothing but support from the fingers on this theory. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we always support well, you, Scott. We always support you. Yeah, what helps me not feel that bad for Edmure being like the scapegoat in all of this is just his general attitude, which is um, he's entitled. Yeah, he is. <laughs> he's, he's a shallow jerk, and uh, he's being mean to his sister. So um, yeah. he has yeah. no sympathy from this court. And it's like uh, he also, he also, I think he thinks more of his abilities than than he should. He's overconfident. Oh, really? You don't think so? I get the impression that he's got huge self-esteem issues. Oh, well, maybe it's just a projection of, of overconfidence. I get the feeling that he's really just tried to, like, live up to Edmure or Hoster's expectations. But he's never been able, but he's never, like, at the same time, while always wanting to look good in Hoster's eyes, he's never wanted to put in the required work to look good in Hoster's eyes. Do you know what I mean? Like, <laughs> yeah, I think, I think he that's wants similar. to be the perfect yeah. son while still being able to go out and get wasted and, and stuff like that and not practice his archery as much as he should. Maybe um, I'm just teasing. Guys. Oh man. No, look for some father. I don't going blame out and getting him there. He's just part of he's, being a perfect son. He's stressed out. I, I don't blame him for missing the arrow shots. But. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, Matt Mercer of Critical Role would probably assign DCs of increasing values 10, 15, and 20, which are not easy to roll against when you're trying to light a ship on fire from a distance. Sorry, guys, that's Dungeons & Dragons humor. What? Uh, <laughs> okay. <laughs> I had no idea what you were talking about. <laughs> Dungeons & Dragons humor. Basically, gotcha. it's difficult to do, and it keeps getting harder to do as the ship gets further away, right? Sure, yes. And, yeah, I, mean, I don't think it's that surprising <laughs> You know that he missed. You know, but yeah. <laughs> anyway, he could have practiced the day before. He knew it was coming. Yeah, I think he was Got always really, arrows. really intrigued by the idea of being the Lord of River Run and stuff. But at the same time, you know, it's it's kind of like with anything you you feel comfortable knowing that Hoster's still alive and well, and you're never quite prepared for when that moment comes. Yeah. And, yeah, yeah. It's almost like uh, this just highlights his insecurities now that Hoster really is gone. When those, when you know, when when it's thrust upon Rob because uh, you know Ned is taken from them, uh, kind of unexpectedly. You know, th- those people that receive their power instantly uh, and and weren't ready for it, maybe have some in- advantages over those that are kind of like waiting and waiting and waiting and waiting for it. You know what I mean? Mm. Yeah, they don't have time to overthink it and mm-hmm. uh, just react more. Yeah. Uh, Agreed. Uh, how about something a yeah, little lighter? So, <laughs> okay, wouldn't there be looters to go take that armor? It probably is. Guys, just like waiting on the riverbanks. Yeah, for you know the... that stuff's valuable, man. Yeah, anyway. I liked it's the all, idea. It's all misty. Uh, no one can see. Yeah, the idea of the wooden sword instead of an actual sword, though. Yeah. Which would float. It floats! It floats! Throw her into the pond! Mm-hmm. <laughs> It'd be a little burned up, though. Yeah. 
Oh, yeah. Good point. Dang it. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> Damn it. Um, I was just going to uh, bring up a little personal canon I had. Ooh. Mm. So, so reading through this chapter was a little bit frustrating because Edmure is just like such a douchebag. <laughs> Rob is so stubborn. I felt like Catelyn is just like too patient and too pandering to Rob's well-being. Like, like she wasn't being her strong self in this chapter. But you know who saved it? Freaking Brendan Tully. The Blackfish. Yeah. Oh, coming in, firing that arrow, getting the shot, uh, being the voice of reason, just being a cool guy. Um, pop quiz. Do you guys remember what uh, Brendan Blackfish looks like? Um, uh, if I remember, he's got kind of salt and pepperish hair. Mm, yeah. Beardy. Yeah, kind of. Kind of tall and craggy, but looking really good for his age. Yeah. I mean, uh, I don't remember the look of the show. Yeah, I've I've cheated because I've seen him in the show, and so that's colored my my impression. Um, I am thankful that I have no idea what he looks like in the show, but I'll tell you what he looks like in my head. Okay. (laughs) Been waiting for this for ages. (laughs) Ready? Ready? Jeffrey Dean Morgan. Mmm. Oh, you guys see it? Looking uh, him up now because I have no idea who that is. Star of Stargate Atlantis, and before that, uh, MacGyver, right? No, you're thinking of. Um, oh yeah, he's perfect. You're thinking of who are you thinking of? The MacGyver guy. I can't remember what his name is. I no, Jeffrey Dean Morgan was in like in the Watchmen. He was the dad in Supernatural. Um, much yeah. older, though, right, uh, Brookie? Um, well, I mean, Jeffrey Dean Morgan's getting up there. Yeah, let's see how old he is. I'm looking at him now. Oh, he's forty-nine. Okay, so Brendan Blackfish is ten years younger than Hoster. Yeah. Yeah, Okay, so like in ten years, he's still going to be looking real good, though. Agreed. I could do that. Jeffrey Dean Morgan is the Blackfish. I like that. Yeah. You know, you know who he's cast as, Brooke? (laughs) Who? Actually, you don't read the comics, do you? For Walking Dead. Uh, oh yeah, no, no, he's going to be um, the the guy who uh, uh, on yeah, Hill. Don't don't spoil yeah, shit. Negan. Don't spoil shit for people. But yeah, Negan. Yeah. <laughs> You're the one who <laughs> listen. <laughs> You're the one listen. who just brought that up, and you shouted his name. Well, so, knowing his name isn't really a spoiler. If you don't read the comics, knowing that there's going to be a new character with a name name isn't going to hurt anything. But if you tell, okay. if you blast out what that character does in the upcoming comics. That might spoil some things, because... Right. Anyway. My apologies for <laughs> sullying the nerd code. Oh, sorry. I, I'm restricted here to the nerd code. Uh, yes, you, so, yes, who's the fucking guy I'm talking about? Who's MacGyver? <clears throat> I don't know. <laughs> I gotta look that up, because he was really good on uh, Stargate SG-1. Yeah. I have um, no idea what you guys are talking about. You don't know what is. MacGyver is? I know what MacGyver is. So MacGyver. From 1980s. Look, I'm old, all right? Uh, Wait, so are you talking about MacGyver in the 1980s? Or are you talking about (laughs) Okay, tell me how how Dean Anderson and Dean Morgan are that different. (laughs) It is two three-named guys. (laughs) Yeah, both of them with the middle name being Dean. And really common last names, Anderson and Morgan. I think I get a reasonable pass. For failing that one. Sure, Gene Anderson. Um, he could actually play um, Hoster. Hmm. Hmm. Nice. Okay, I'm liking this. This was a this was a, a really valuable divergence. I'm glad we got into climb into your head 
and to realize that I don't know anything about MacGyver. Yeah, we're really tangenting indiscriminately into the crowd right now. Yes. He's got some okay pictures, and he's got some not okay pictures. Are you talking about questionable content? I'm talking about aging well. Oh. Oh, yeah. Yeah, he could be foster. Everyone gets super fat in the face. (laughs) Wow. (laughs) They do. (laughs) Oh, gosh. There was one right. one one little bit in this that I, I didn't want to let go. Uh, Kat says at one point she's she's talking about how Rob doesn't really want to come see her anymore and that he wants to spend all of his time with Jane and and the Westerlings and stuff. Mm. And uh, specifically, she says something like Jane makes him smile and I have nothing but grief. And I just think this is a fantastic representation of kind of parents growing older and having Mom's to let go everywhere. of their kids. <laughs> and how I mean it's very sad right but it's something that pretty much all parents have to do like eventually your kids kind of move on from a lot of w- what you offer them you know mm-hmm. that's very sad mm-hmm. but I, I really I really liked that what did you take of uh, uh, Catelyn's advice that Rob bend the knee maybe I'm inventing this but I feel like she's been saying that for a long time and he's always like no I don't know it's not a, it's not a it's not a new suggestion is it I think it is uh, I think She's as far as explicitly supportive. stating it is, I think it was. I, I think she may have hinted at it back at Mount Kaylin. I don't remember completely, but I think as far as explicitly offering it as a legit option to Rob, I think this is the first time she's done it. Hmm. I'm gonna have to look that up. I feel like we've talked. I feel like we've had a similar conversation like this before. Well, there um... are some battles that shouldn't be won with swords. Uh, I don't know. The North is far enough away from King's Landing that, on one hand, I think if they did bend the knee, things could go reasonably back to normal. But on the other hand, I don't know, I think like trade sanctions, I can see Tywin Lannister doing something like that. Just yeah, messing things up eco- economically for, for the North if he wanted to. Roos kind of makes a similar point in the, in the Jamie chapter coming up, right? About being so far away from the day-to-day operations of he's referring to Casterly Rock, but mm-hmm. just that he's not, he's like, I don't care. That's, he's not worried. It's yeah. Not gonna, you, you guys aren't going to put in the effort to really do anything when I'm this far away as I am. Which is a valid point. Yeah. They're a long ways away. I mean, like you said, it took how long for them to get news of Winterfell burning? Yeah. 500 pages. Just say, sorry, Rob. That's all you got to do. Just say, sorry. Things are fixed. Mm. It, it does, I will say, it takes, even when you've been wrong, to take some brass balls to make your king apologize to you. <laughs> oh my gosh, just before this episode, I was, before this recording, I had playing while I was doing dishes and stuff. Uh, it's always sunny in Philadelphia, because I'm obsessed with it right now. And it was the episode where they try to resolve their beef with everybody. Do you remember that one, Brooke? <laughs> yes, Scott, I don't know if you've their seen beef. That one. Yeah. <laughs> And they're talking to the two, uh, like, incest brothers from that really weird family. McQuails. Yes. And one of them had had his eye, like, clawed out or whatever. And so they're trying he to squash the beef with them. And, and they said, and the guy's like, if you can find us a new, he gives them two options. He goes, we will sign your peace treaty. They offered everybody a peace treaty to actually sign to squash the beef officially. He said to sign your peace treaty, all you have to do is A, you can find me a brand new I, or B, you can just apologize to me. And I'll sign it right now. And Mac <laughs> and Dennis look at each other and they're like, 
oh, we're going to have to find an eye somewhere. <laughs> <laughs> Apologizing is the worst. <laughs> Especially like you said as a king. Yeah. So, all right. I, I mean, yeah. Apologizing, yeah, apologizing will put Ned's head back on his body. Ew. <clears throat> Real issue. Yeah. I, okay, uh, ready to go? Yeah. Done. Cool. Okay. Davos, Scad. Matt. 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 Even you can't keep us straight. <laughs> you already knew that. Eyes are crying from the onions in the hold. Save Stanley Boy. Save Stanley Boy. Finger bones in a bag mean the truth will be told. Steady Davos. Steady Davos. All right, so Davos remains imprisoned in the cells below Dragonstone, accompanied only by Darkness and his new Selly. Uh, Lord Alistair Florent, Stannis's former hand. So it was more of the same for the two prisoners, loneliness interspersed by the occasional interruption of meager meals from their jailers, when they were surprised to find a new visitor, Axel Florent, Alistair's brother and Dragonstone's Castellan. Alistair rejoiced at his inevitable freedom as the cell door was unlocked, when to both he and Davos was surprised, it was Davos that Axel beckoned to come forth. And leaving Alistair to the dark, Davos begins the long ascent under guard of Axel and his guards to meet the man who had summoned him, Stannis Baratheon. <clears throat> so mildly sure that uh, he was about to die a traitor's death, but hoping to at least take Melisandre down with him, Davos was surprised when Axel cornered him before they went into Stannis, telling him that he, Axel, had the gift of seeing into the fires and that he saw that Stannis would be king with Axel as his hand. He revealed to Davos that plans were in place to make that happen and that many of the Queen's men and even Davos's old pal Salador San were in on it. Axel then urged Davos to just go along with it, else perchance he meet an untimely demise. Hmm. Davos is then taken in to see Stannis, who he finds to physically be a shell of the man he was. Uh, under his flame-tipped crown is an emaciated face that looked more like a skull, with the rest of his body not looking much different. Davos predicts Stannis has lost some two stone. Uh, I meant to look that up, how much two stone is. Maybe you guys know. I've, I forgot to look it up. Uh, nevertheless, Davos is treated with the hint of a smile from Stannis as he enters. And this is the first time I can remember Stannis even hinting at a smile. And Davos wonders if Stannis even knew he'd been locked up. So Stannis then asks Axel to reveal his plan to Davos so Davos can give his two cents on it. Uh, the, real, the reveal of the plan is less Ocean's Eleven knocking over a casino and more Sandlot try to get a baseball back from a backyard. Uh, with Axel proposing they use Salador's fleet and the 1,500-ish troops left over from the Blackwater to attack and raise Claw Isle, which belongs to Adrian Keltigar, a bannerman of Stannis who had uh, bent the knee to Joffrey after the Blackwater. Florent reasons that if they burn down Claw Isle's castle and put its people to the sword, it will set an example of the consequences of siding with the Lannisters and also show Westeros that Stannis isn't quite dead yet. Ooh, second Monty Python reference already. Uh, in addition, Claw Isle is short on manpower but high on riches, riches that could hopefully be used to uh, bolster Stannis's purse, buy Sans allegiance for a while longer. Um, but really, that's the plan. That's it. Stannis, his uh, teeth grinding the whole time, asks Davos what he thinks. 
instructing him to speak truly. It's just kind of like when your wife is like, I want your honest opinion, uh, but you know you've still got to be very measured in your response. But after considering the consequences, Davos defaults to his usual blunt self, calling the plan folly and cowardice. Claw Isle, he reasons, is not full of traitors, just small folk, and most of them widows and children whose husbands and fathers died fighting for Stannis. As for Lord Keltigar, he's old, he just wants to die in peace, and his surviving soldiers who bent the knee with him, they're just following the lead of their lord. What would, else would you expect him to do? When Stannis declares that every man has a duty to remain loyal to his king, Davos is undertaken by an overwhelming urge to drop the mic and blurts out, Oh, just like you stayed loyal to Ares when Robert rebelled? Awkward. So in the ensuing awkward silence, Stannis sends Axel out, leaving him alone with Davos. Uh, then, to Davos's surprise, he commends Davos for his honesty, admitting that he agrees with him about the whole Claw Isle thing, and they begin to chat it up. Um, I'll spare a lot of it and just get to the big thing that happens. A bomb that Stannis drops on Davos that he could never have expected. He not only names him Lord of the Rainwood and Admiral of the, Nar- of the Narrow Sea, but also Hand of the Effing King. Meaning Davos, yes, is going to be Stannis' new hand. Uh, Davos's humble objections are met with rebuffs from Stannis at every turn, who says there's no man fitter to be his hand and no man he'd rather have by his side for the battle. When Davos asks what battle, Melisandre all of a sudden makes a grand entrance, answering that it's the Great Battle, capital G, capital B, the battle against the Long Night, and the only way to win is to have men who have hearts of fire. Stannis agrees, saying that he, yes, he, had seen it in the flames. Um, After some encouragement from Melisandre, here's what he saw. I'll quote it. Uh, He says, he's talking about the chimney drawing strongly, bits of ash rising from the fire. He says, I stared at them, feeling half a fool, but she bid me look deeper. And the ashes were white, yet all at once it seemed as if they were falling. Snow, I thought. Then the sparks in the air seemed to circle to become a ring of torches, and I was looking through the fire down on some high hill in a forest. The cinders had become men in black behind the torches, and there were shapes moving through the snow. For all the heat of the fire, I felt a cold so terrible I shivered, and when I did, the sight was gone. The fire but a fire once again, but what I saw was real. I'd stake my kingdom on it. Whoa. So in our final moment of the chapter, Davos witnesses a strange conversation that obviously it started long before he got there. Melisandre asks for the boy to use as a sacrifice, and we can only assume she's talking about Edric Storm, Robert Baratheon's bastard son, uh, who is in their protection, because he has the blood of kings in his veins and can therefore awake the stone dragon. Stannis is as staunch as Courtney C.K. Penrose in not giving the boy up, saying that he's cool with going with Plan B, which Melisandre admits should work, but not as certainly as it would if they offered Edric himself. So Plan B then goes down, as Melisandre reveals that she had brought three leeches full of blood, Edric's blood, if Davos is to be believed. Uh, Stanos picks Stanos. <laughs> Stannis picks each one up one by one and tosses them into the fire. As he tosses each one in, he says a name. The first, the usurper, the usurper, Joffrey Baratheon. The second, the usurper, Balon Greyjoy. And the third, the usurper, Rob Stark. That's it. Holy cow. Whoa. I just want you to say usurper. Well, first off. <sighs> I said it like three different ways each time I said it. 
Uh, one stone is 14 pounds or 6.35k. Okay. I was thinking like 20 pounds. I had okay. to Google it. I didn't know that. Thank you. It's still significant. He still lost 30 pounds. Yeah, that's, uh, that's 30 solid pounds off a guy who wasn't, love- you know, huge to begin with, I think. He wasn't triple B big. <laughs> I don't know what it says about their relationship that they both just look like shit and neither of them says anything to the other. <laughs> 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 terrible <laughs> nothing <laughs> but uh maybe that's why maybe that's Davos why Stannis, maybe that's why stannis was had that hint of a smile when davos came in he was like he looks as bad as i do yeah, nice. <laughs> yeah is that why stannis was keeping him in jail he's like <laughs> i look like hell i better make sure he looks like hell too yeah. Because that's the only explanation I can come up with as to why somebody would keep him in a cell for God knows how long and then promote him to his right-hand man in the next action. Yeah, and maybe like Stan- maybe Stannis had no idea Davos was even down there, like Davos thinks. Yeah, I actually just came up with an explanation. Hmm. Just now. Just now. Okay. Uh, it is consistent with the treatment of Davos in the past with the fingers and the ascension to lordship. Punish mm. him for what he did wrong and raise him up for what he did right. He's punishing him for his premeditated attack on Melisandre and raising him up for his service in general. Mm-hmm. Maybe. I don't know. Yeah. Yeah, I like that. Brooke, I think you were going to say something like... Uh... So I just want to mention my copy of Asas has this really excellent typo in this chapter. It's just <laughs> oh, it like does. a crappy copy all around. Oh, yeah. It's the 2005 soft cover edition, if that makes any difference. Uh-huh. <laughs> I know that edition well. It, I, don't know. I don't know. Yeah, I'll bet. <laughs> um, when Davos is arguing against Sir Stormclaw Isle, he says, um, yet Sir Axel proposes we swoop down on the homes they left behind to rape their widows. And instead of widows, it says windows. <laughs> so as you're reading, it's like, rape your windows. <laughs> <laughs> it's just uh, no. it's really distracting and it really like damages the gravity of the sense <laughs> yes i just oh, those yeah. windows it's just so so horrible. yeah i'm just getting raped left and right just splattered the worst possible Look, things <laughs> this reminds me of something that i've long thought almost every window i've ever seen was in need of a good raping <laughs> <laughs> okay okay <laughs> Scott's walking past. He's in a mall window shopping. He's like, oh, yeah. I could get it with that. You're going to get yourself arrested, my friend. Yeah, I don't even know what I meant. I don't either. All right. Well, windows in need of a good raping. That's a a great typo. Yeah, it really is. Better fail. What do you guys think of Axel seeing stuff in the flames, as he claims? I don't know. Stannis seeing stuff in the flames. That I remember my first time reading through that took me back. It seemed like it was – at first my initial thought was that seeing in the flames was a gift that you were more kind of born with, you know? But this makes it seem like it's a learned skill, right? That anyone could learn to see into the flames if they – I don't know. Took a 101 course or something. Well, I thought it was more... I, I thought it was neither of those things. Uh, not that something you're born with 
although I suppose you could be born with it, but uh, or, or a skill you learn, but something that Relore chooses to bestow upon you in a moment or not. Mm. That's uh, mm. yeah. or it could just be like residuals too. coming off of Melisandre. <laughs> If you're, if you're yeah. sitting next to her at the fire. I don't know. The Stannis thing sounded legit only because yeah. he is just so serious and he would not lie about seeing visions in a fire. But the Axel thing, like anyone can look up in the sky and see shapes in the clouds, right? Like I think he's yeah. just look. He's scraping for, for anything that, that gives him credibility. Yeah, and I, I, Well, and, and Stannis seems legit because guess what? We've seen that scene before. Yeah, we know it happened. So yeah, so, yeah. And what's the significance of that? Yeah, well, it's the fist of the first men that he's seeing, right? Or did I misread that? Oh, that's sure. what I was picturing. Okay. So yeah, I mean, we know as readers that it happened, and so we're like, oh yeah, he is he is seeing stuff because that happened, and we know it. Um, and he's describing something real. Axel's thing seemed vague, and yeah, I, yeah, it it could be one of those things where you see what you want to see, right? Yeah. Isn't that what's that mirror called in Harry Potter? Isn't that kind of the like oh, that? The mirror of Erinseed or something? Yeah. 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 So the real skill isn't so much being able to see something into flames. It seems like the real skill with all of this is being able to look into the flames and look at whatever it is they're seeing objectively, right? Not tainted by what you want to see. Mm. Um so yeah, maybe Stannis's kind of skepticism or cynicism when he looked into the flames actually was of benefit to him because he wasn't expecting to see anything significant, right? It, yeah, I think um, I remember I went to a hypnotist once. Uh, you know, it was a big theater full of people, right? I mean, probably hundreds of people in there, and he would the the hypnotist would mass hypnotize people, right? Like you'd get fifty people that anybody that wanted to from the audience would come up and they took you through this exercise to hypnotize everybody at once. It was pretty impressive. And I went up there. I was like, yeah, I'll do it. And uh, I was, I don't know, I was young, 16 maybe at the time, 17. Um, and uh, my friend went up with, with me, and he totally got hypnotized. Uh, was up there acting like Tom Cruise at the hypnotist's request, because apparently Tom <laughs> Cruise was his, his hero. It said, act like your hero. Um, but it only it only took on... I don't know, uh, 40% of the people maybe. Not not everybody succeeded, right? Um, and the guy said at the time, the hypnotist said, it's, it's, not, a, it's not a measure of mind strength or uh, anything like that. It's, it's, a, it's an openness. It's, it's, it's mm. whether you really want it to work or not is, to, is, is, whether, is whether it will succeed for you or something like that. And if, if anyone, uh, if any followers uh, know more about hypnotism than this, because this is just my memory from 20 years ago, um, it, it, it kind of strikes me as that. Like, your, your mind needs to be ready to receive it, or you won't. And maybe that's why Stannis couldn't receive it until now, is that he is such a skeptic that he, he just couldn't buy it until all this other stuff has happened to him, and he's kind of seen Melisandre's power, and now he's more open to it. And so now he can see. I, mm. I did not have that story prepared. That just came to me. <laughs> well, there you go. Um, I would love to argue against the myth that hypnotism actually works, even on 40% of recipients. But 
maybe it does and I've been hypnotized to believe it doesn't. So I don't know. Like, so really, I just, I just need to, to discover your trigger word. You're probably still <laughs> hypnotized. And if I say the word, all of a sudden, scat will start cawing like a crow or something like that. Well, I'll start acting like Tom Cruise because he's my hero like too. <laughs> well, that was the weird thing. So my friend... When, after afterward, you know that he they at the end of the show he like snaps everyone out of it or whatever, and um, we you know we're talking like, you know out, he was the only one of our group of friends that 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 went up there and had it work on him, and so we're asking him all this stuff. And he's like, well, I don't really remember anything, and we're like, do you don't do you remember acting like Tom Tom Cruise? And he's like Tom Cruise, and I'm like yeah, apparently he's your hero. Is he here your hero? Because you know he's one of my best friends. I didn't know that about him, and he's like, well, I don't know, I. I like Top Gun. Like it was, it wasn't something that was that deep in his head as a real hero thing. So it was kind of vague. Mm. But uh, it's, I mean, he. It was definitely, it definitely worked on him. I mean, he was up there doing all sorts of stuff that there's no way this kid would be doing unless he was being influenced. Our mind is very powerful and very fragile. That's my summary. And so is Sir Axel's. Yeah, I. I uh, to answer your question from a long time ago, I think Axel is full of shit. I love how Axel's a parent endgame right now, and who knows, maybe he's playing a long game, but he just all he really wants is to be the hand to to a king who is not really a king yet and is in the worst position of any of the pretenders who want to be the king right now. Yeah. Or contenders, maybe I should say, not pretenders. Well, it is known that like all that's really left of Stannis is forces are florence is and he florence. just wants he just wants to impress all of his family uh, yeah maybe that's part of it yeah. <laughs> i thought i thought maybe he's maybe he's angling for a takeover knowing that you know over half of the 1500 people they have left are florence mm. maybe he starts his hand and then weasels his way up and in but i don't know i just the I florence see this... are kind of mccoils <laughs> I see. I see. This Axel is a bumbling buffoon windbag that can't see more than five feet in front of his face. Right? Uh, Could he really plan something that yeah, and long gamed? That's the way I see him. But you know, sure. maybe I'm wrong. Yeah. Uh, how about the fact that Davos has learned nothing from his failed attempt to kill Melisandre before and goes up with the same intent of mind that he can still choke her out when he gets up there. <laughs> Like they're just gonna send you right back to prison, man. Didn't you learn them from the first time? He really hates that chick. Yeah. Yep. I didn't mention it in my summary, but Stan Stannis stands up for a big time too. Mm-hmm. Like, no, she didn't do anything. Tyrion yeah. did. Yeah. You weirdo. Yeah, that's yeah. true. Okay, you guys uh, ready to move on? I'm done. Uh, yeah, sure. Good, good Davos chapter. Look good at this Davos guy. Chapter. This corner office now. Yeah. Like yeah. has his own private bathroom. Doesn't even have to read. Spot. Doesn't even know how to read. Yeah. Good for Davos. <laughs> uh, let's, uh, let's take a look at Jamie. Would you know that he's deadly in a fight and a smile so wide to get cheating at the palm of his hand? Jamie Lannister got a thing for sister, gonna keep it quiet so we'll push a kid out a window. And when that king's lying, dead it doesn't matter, reason. Bottom line is sister treason. At deepest side, could there be something on if you can see that he will could that be? Said Jamie, said Jamie, said Jamie Lannister, say it again, said Jamie, said Jamie, said Jamie Lannister. Uh-uh-uh. Well, this one's big. It is big. So 
I can't work out if the bathhouses at Heron Hall are always unisex, but I guess when it comes to guests, no one is super worried about modesty, except for Brienne, who is mortified when Jamie and his stump get dumped into the same tub as she is in while she's mid-bath. Uh, more accurately, out of all the large family-style baths available to choose from in this bathhouse, Jamie decided he wanted company while delousing and climbed into the same tub as Brienne. So Jamie is grumpy, frustrated with the uselessness of his left hand, and looking to pick a fight. And when his mocking drives Brienne out of the tub, which gives Jamie a good glance at all of her parts, of course he compares her to Cersei, which is like the most apples to oranges comparison there ever was. But his body is surprisingly appreciative and he apologizes to Brienne asking to make a truce. Yeah. Brienne points out that truces are built on trust and Jamie doesn't even let her finish that thought because yeah, why should she trust the King's Slayer? Which leads us to a fantastic recounting of Jamie's time serving Ares as a teenager. Turns out losses during Robert's Rebellion, Dornish rumblings, and Tywin Lannister's lack of support had made Ares extra super crazy, and he'd arranged for caches of wildfire to be hidden all over the city. Like down in Flea Bottom, underneath the Great Sept of Baelor, in stables, even in the Red Keep. So if the city was taken or close to being taken, he'd have the master pyromancers light it all up, leaving just ashes for Robert to claim. So the king's hand at the time, Lord Chelstead, spoke out against this plan. He even begged for for Ares to not destroy the city and everyone in it. And Jamie loyally watched as Ares had Chelstead burned alive for arguing with him. So and then he made uh, Rosart, the uh, head pyromancer at the time, his hand instead, which uh, unsurprisingly, Rosart had no problem with this plan of burning the entire the entirety of King's Landing down with the substance. So, um, yeah, uh, we basically get to learn all of the details of how Jamie faced with Tywin Lannister at the gates of King's Landing, having uh, believing that he was there to help save the city, gets sent out by Ares to bring back his father's head. Um, instead, uh, Jamie goes out, lops off Rossert's head, and then kills Ares before Ares can tell any other pyromancer to light up the city. Um, it's great. I won't recount every detail, but I hope everybody enjoyed this story because it really lends credence to Jamie's own personal uh, ethics and morals and and why he killed Ares in the first place. Um, so imagine the baths as Jamie is telling this tale. It's dark and steamy, and he's probably feeling a little like sauna loopy. And when he's done, he can't quite gauge Brienne's reaction, but he does ask but she does ask him why his reason for killing the king is not known to anyone else. And Jamie throws like a little tantrum because it was Ned Stark who found him over the body of the king. And being an arguably overly honorable man wouldn't have bought Jamie's explanation. Uh, then he kind of passes out from tantrum- tantruming himself uh, out of the tub. And luckily, Brienne is there to gently catch him probably more gently than Cersei ever could, is what he thinks. 
So between Brienne and Kyburn, they actually get Jamie dressed and to dinner with Ruse Bolton, where the appetizers prunes in classic creepy Ruse style. They keep the conversation light, talking about Ruse's hot new wife, Rob's dumb marriage, Edmure's upcoming nuptials, and oh yeah, your brother Tyrion is married too. To whom you ask? Why to the very girl Brienne was going to trade Jamie for? Sansa Stark. It turns out that Ruse is going to send Jamie onto King's Landing instead of collecting any of the bounties on his head. And as consolation, he'll leave Brienne with Vargo Hote. And that's pretty much the end of the chapter. It was a real good one, especially when Jamie starts wondering why he gets to be called Kingslayer while no one ever calls Robert the Oathbreaker. Hey-o! Hey! Yeah. It was a really good Jamie-Brienne relationship chapter because uh, at least I got the impression that Jamie had finally found an honorable person who he could confess the truth to since he never could to Ned. And Brienne is just as difficult to persuade. And yeah, and uh, we don't actually get her full reaction. But I mean, she does help him get dressed, get all cleaned up like leads him by the arm through the courtyard to, towards the dinner uh, is very supportive without arguing. And yeah, it's good. Yeah. It's kind of like the, the Brienne personality trait that Scott brought up last time of how she's just like, let's just get it done. Let's just get it done. Mm-hmm. And I, you saw that in her helping get Jamie to where he was. And the fact that she was ready to help him, like you said, uh, I think, yeah, I agree with you. It, it touches on the fact that she was in some way affected by what he said so mm-hmm. yeah I, I i think it's uh it's beyond just getting it done i mean there, there were other people that could have helped him to get ready and get over there uh and she took it upon herself i think because of the story because of how it touched her um because of you know maybe she she's had some feeling of maybe i've pegged this guy eh, maybe not wrong but uh, a little harshly um mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, I think I think the story definitely had an impact. What really stuck out to me was I remembered the talk that when he was with Catelyn at River Run, and that little talk in his danky, gross cell, uh, and he was talking about oaths and all the oaths he had to make and all of that, and um, you could tell he was obviously bugged by it and had negative thoughts towards all these oaths. The way he just talked so sarcastically about it, but we didn't really get a lot of reason why he felt that way. And I think this really highlighted his disdain of oaths. Um, it's because, or in vows, I don't remember what it was, if it was oaths or vows, maybe it was both. Um, they're kind of the same thing, right? Uh, his Kingsguard vows and his vows as a knight, as just a knight, not a member of the Kingsguard, came in direct conflict with each other. Right? Mm. Like he was forced to watch uh, Chelstead just burn up, right? And he had to sit there and watch it as a member of the Kingsguard when his vows as a knight dictated that he should be helping Chelstead. He should be getting him out of that mess. Or the times when he would be standing guard outside of Ares's bedroom and he heard the things that Ares was doing to his wife in there. And he knew that as a knight, he should be busting in there and helping Rhaenyra. Um, busting Ariel, in there? Excuse me. I heard what you did. Hey, oh. 
Uh, but his vows as a Kingsguard dictated that, no, he doesn't. So yeah. it's, you can see why, uh, now I can see why this, this, these ideas of vows and oaths and things are something that he just is so sarcastic towards and so cynical about. We're going to get a character uh, taking the knight's oaths in a couple chapters here. And, um, right. In yep. this very episode. And, yeah, listening to that, you can come back to this and say, yeah, I, he... <laughs> He's in a no-win situation, right? Yep. And um, he's not alone. I, I, I feel like every, every every knight probably is is in that situation because yeah. Any as a knight, a knight doesn't get you anything. That's one of the things reading uh, reading a knight of the Seven Kingdoms kind of makes you realize because most of the knights we read about in this in in this series are knights of wealthy families, right? They kind of got their lives mostly set, right? Mm-hmm. Um. In United the Seven Kingdoms, Dunk is penniless. He has to swear his sword to someone to help. Well, the minute you swear to someone else, what comes first? Who you just swore to and keeping their loyalties, or the loyal, the you know what you swore to be a knight from the beginning? I, I, it's every knight has this kind of conflict because being a knight doesn't. It's not like you become a knight and all of a sudden you're taken care of. You still must. Right. Make ends meet, and to do that, mm-hmm. you make compromises just like everyone else does. Yep, <clears throat> I'm sick of everybody calling him the Kingslayer. <laughs> uh, Jamie's shorter. Can we just go with Jamie? The rule, <laughs> look, the rule of nicknames is you got to have a nickname that's shorter than your actual name. We call you Scad E. Well, I guess we call you Scad sometimes. Well, syllable wise, it's pretty much the same. <laughs> anyway. But no, uh, yeah, like my last name Thacker, nickname Thack. Right. Mm-hmm. He's getting called cripple a lot lately, so that's a shortening. There you go. <laughs> True. But but yeah. for real, something that hit me was where he thinks Jamie. My name is Jamie. Right. Yep. Yeah. When when Brienne's like the Kingslayer, help him. After and she just heard that story. After she heard the story, he's like, "Come on, Brienne. Yeah. Did you hear anything he just said? No. But uh, you know, he'd always kind of." we talked about this before how he considers himself the Kingslayer. Now it's like, he's been told that so many times that yeah. now he kind of believes it or whatever. So that was a big moment where after he finally lets it all out and tells Brienne, everything spills the beans after that, it's kind of like almost like the, that burden of the Kingslayer is almost kind of lifted off of him a little bit. And he says that really poignant line, I think was Jamie. My name is Jamie. I thought that was a pretty powerful part actually, even though we're joking about it. Well, I, it's not, the guilt maybe gets allayed from him, but but he is the king slayer. Sure. Just because there's conflict in the the loyalties doesn't mean he didn't kill a king. Well, it yeah, it's it still true. That. It's like calling sure. Sam the Slayer. Right. Uh, it's, you know, it's about moving past it. Right? Yeah. Right. And what is what does it mean For, to have that name? Yeah. Um, you know, he he could wear it as a badge of honor if he gets really far past it. Right. Yeah. That was a shitty king. I should have killed him before. <laughs> you know, like. Which, knowing Jamie, you'd think that's what he would do, right? Yeah. Just with his normal personality being all brash and full of himself, you'd think that he would be wearing that badge proudly of I killed Ares. Yeah. Because he was such a terrible guy. So that's just a really interesting wrinkle to who Jamie is that he would bottle that up and not tell anybody. Is there anything to uh, – you mentioned it, Brooke, in your summary that it's when he insults her and she gets out of the tub and he sees her in all her um, glory – that are all together. That uh, that he actually apologizes when his cock kind of tells him to. <laughs> uh, I don't want to be a dick. I'm sorry. That's essentially what happened. Ew. I mean, but is there really a relationship there? Was it? It wasn't really the sexual stimulation that got him over the top to apologize, was it? Uh, 
I didn't interpret it that way. Yeah. I I think I think he he just got carried away in his insults. Like the the ultimate thing that sent her launching out of the tub was uh he was waving his stump in her face. <laughs> <laughs> and, Been there. And, like, dude, that and, thing stinks. Yeah. And he was like, No wonder Renly died under your care. Sort of insinuating that under her care he lost a hand. Yeah. And uh yeah, I think bringing up Renly is always gonna be a trigger for her. So she was like she was like, Well, we're done here and yeah. I think he I think he knew how damaging that was and he apologized immediately. Um because I think he's 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 feeling it's pretty pretty run down these days. Pretty pretty not himself and yeah. uh, obviously he needs as many allies as possible and he he knows that he needs her just for basic like putting food in his mouth so <laughs> yeah well and the, the most point, base needs sorry cut this out if we need to has the point already been made that jamie has made he's he's claimed that he's never really even been like interested in other women besides cersei before has he has that point been made yet um, I think he's brought that up. We definitely know to somebody. Been with in some ways, else. I was more loyal. I was more loyal to her than your Ned. I think oh yeah, the, cat, the cat. Yeah, it must yeah. have been the Catlin chapter. Um, so the fact that he's even got like, you know, a Habsy for Brienne is is significant. Looking at yeah. it from a purely carnal point of view, I know you guys are digging it, deeper, and I'm just it, thinking it, surface it, level. It might me. not be personal <laughs> either. I mean, it's just been a while. Yeah, it could, it could have been any lower half of any person, and he oh. would have been like, "Matt, well, you've been on a mission. You know what we're talking about." <laughs> <laughs> I want to discuss too much of Ruse Bolton's dinner, just because I feel like it leads to other stuff. Other stuff. But is there anything else you guys want to talk about? Uh, just interesting, I guess that Ruse. Uh, you know, we we always talk about how no one trusts the Kingslayer, and Jamie brings it up with. Uh, alarming frequency, how no one trusts him, but Roos is willing to trust him on his word. I'll trust you. Um, and here's the thing, I trust Roos. Like, he's a smart guy. Very shrewd. Really, like, uh, can read people well. I mean, he he uses it for very nefar- nefarious purposes, but he is good at reading people. Mm. Yeah, calculated. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, yeah, willing willing to put his ambitions before his uh, maybe personal tastes or interest, right? Marrying Walda <laughs> Frey, that Walda. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> well, I get the most most money out of her. So, yep, we'll pick her. Yeah, that's life so lesson: don't trust a guy willing to call his own wife fat in your presence. <laughs> Just not, not uh, fat Walda. Well, I don't know if this is a spoiler or not, but Fat Walda loves it. She- She's like, yeah, he picked me. Okay. Finally, snacking pays off. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. But the best part is, is that <laughs> that Ruse um, probably very much insulted or, or pissed pissed Walder off yes, by, by doing that. Because Walder definitely expected him to to pick some lithe young woman, maybe yeah. weighing like I don't know. <sighs> 120? Buck yeah. 20, yeah. <laughs> What's a buck 20 in silver? Like, I don't yeah. know. Five or six bags of silver? Then Walda comes along. <laughs> I don't know. 
he gets a how, how how big she would be, but a lot more silver. Yeah. And uh yeah. So it was a win win. Yeah. <laughs> she sounds like great company too. Go Rusi, yeah. <laughs> ah, um, get her done. Truly a gem of the series, Ruth Bolton. <laughs> you know, that's that's actually pretty big. Like with well, she's pretty big. But Roos marrying a fray. Would that be something that he should owe to like run past his liege lord, meaning Rob, before that happens, or is he free to just like do it? Um, liege lords frequently set up the weddings for their, right. um, yeah, for their subjects. So, yeah, they help broker them and stuff like that. Yeah, but is that like something that like was Roos like stepping on toes and stuff by? It certainly raises an alarm. Not- telling it, it just seems really conveniently timed well, when, when, was when that rob's breaking something off roos is jumping in when was that announcement made that 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 had happened did that just happen well or did it happen jamie, when they traveled through the twins he told before? jamie that they were at the twins and he just happened to marry a fray while he was there yeah. mm-hmm. so it wasn't yeah, it premeditated at all hmm. oh, i see but like see. the time so they the, went through yeah, the twins that's true. yeah the wedding happened before yeah, because because um, he's been in the south the whole time. So the to- when they went through the twins, that's when they're that's when that happened with the army. Because I want to say oh. when he is talking with Arya when she's his cupbearer that he talks to her about Fat Walda. Like she writes let yeah uh, that he does gets happen. letters from her and stuff. Right. Yeah. So it's happened. It's happened a while ago. I mean, I, it must have just happened when they went through the twins. Yeah, that's true. So maybe he did get permission, or Rob did know about it. Yeah. Yeah. Unprepared. We're going to have to All go right. back and look it up. No, because I do remember that happened. Um, she sends him letters. And, and he ignores them. Yeah. He basically, like, burns them up. So, yeah, they were married before. So, yeah. The timing thing, not a question. Great. Should we, we move on? To- yeah. I feel like an ass for being unprepared, but also, let's move on. (laughs) Tyrion, that's me, yeah? Yes, please. Yippers. Cripples and bastards and broken things, but the power of the mind can give you wings. Drinking and japing and yeah, ladies. Tyrion, Lannister, or Imp, if you please. Tyrion is sent to greet the Dornish, including Prince Doran, with a retinue of other retainers to avoid insulting those arriving. Tyrion is alarmed by the volume of Dornish, wishing for fewer, as it would be easier to manage given the powder keg that always accompanies a Martell-Tyrell meeting. In what I consider to be one of George's less effective passages, we get a page of young pod telling us all the families that have come. It's a lot, and they're all important. I'll just leave it at that. The key piece comes out shortly after that. There is no litter. Prince Doran, whom we haven't met yet, always travels in a litter. Tyrion has a bad feeling about this. As the masses approach one another, we learn a bit about Dorn. There's three types of Dornish. Salty, sandy, and stony. They're from the coasts, deserts, and mountains, respectively. Um, All three are represented in this this big group. Uh, They ride slim and swift horses, bred for long distances and running, not for, you know, being wearing heavy battle armor. Um, The lead, Martell Rider, is not Doran. He's younger, he's fit. He's fierce. He's Prince Oberyn Martell, 
Doran's younger brother, and a man capable of inciting a war all on his own, uh, as if to answer Brooke's episode title question. Uh, then we get a page of introductions on both sides. It's boring, but we do learn that Oberyn has brought his bastard paramour. And then we also learn a little bit about the Red Viper Oberyn. First, he killed a man in a duel with a poisoned blade as a youth. Uh, he's a lover, a fighter, a passionate man in all things that will not hold his tongue. Uh, he spent time in the free cities. He forged six chains as a maester before getting bored. Uh, he formed his own sellsword company. This guy's a stone-cold killer. He's essentially a celebrity of Westeros. Oh yeah, he also leaves bastard girls all over Dorne called Sand Snakes. And he's the one that crippled Sansa heartthrob of the week, Willis, as a youth. Then we get a story. Oberyn visited Casterly Rock shortly after Tyrion's birth. It was a boring trip. He essentially insults everything about Castle Rock and House Lannister that he can think of, specifically that he was disappointed by itty-bitty baby Tyrion, who's just recently born. Um, he had been assured that Tyrion was hermaphroditic, that he had an enormous head, a tail, lion's teeth, uh, basically a, a, a physical, a, a ball of physical abnormalities. Tyrion suffers all of these barbs politely, even joking along occasionally. Suffice to say... Oberyn and Elia were disappointed when Cersei brought them to inspect Tyrion. After some more banter, Oberyn cuts to the chase. Seventy-seven courses for the upcoming wedding, but when will justice be served? Tyrion tries to play it off, but Oberyn will not be put off. He ensuring Tyrion that he is here for justice, that he will have it starting but not ending with the mountain that rides. Tyrion, himself not wanting to be threatened, gestures towards the city, and enumerates exactly how many swords they have at their disposal if Obi has malintent. Oberyn is unimpressed himself, so Tyrion jabs back, reaching all the way back to the event that crippled Willis. But even that has no effect. Apparently, Oberyn and Willis are now friends. Willis literally has no ill will towards Obi about the accident, quote-unquote accident, that happened when they were young. A little flustered because nothing is working, Tyrion resorts to threatening again, recommending that Oberyn spend all his time in a whorehouse so that he can die with a breast in his hand, as Oberyn had, had expressed was his desire earlier in the chapter. And that's how the chapter ends. Ooh, Ooh. some great posturing. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. A great yeah. look at a fun new character. Yeah, he's... he's you, you could argue that he's underutilized. I mean, he's... You, you read this, and it's kind of like... Um, it, it, yeah, it, re it reads like a celebrity profile, right? Like, he's good at everything. <laughs> mm -hmm. He's good at everything. He never fails at anything. Yeah, it's almost like the... Um, they have all the memes about Chuck Norris, right? <laughs> like, the Chuck Norris, you know, can do everything. Well, Oberyn can basically do everything, right? He's He became a maester. Yeah, and girls, gave up because he was bored. Yeah. Littering the land with bastards. Yeah. All yeah. women. Yeah. All, all female bastards, somehow. Yeah, that's, skill. that's that's a feat. That's a feat. Yes. Yeah. 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 No, I I definitely want to meet him. I feel like Tyrion kind of met his match yes. on on this one, and uh, and found somebody he can't just charm. Yes. And out um, and out speak. Yeah. Yeah. We I I made a similar note, Brooke. It's like uh, Oberyn kind of gets the best of Tyrion here in this verbal exchange. And we almost never see that. I've talked about this in previous episodes. We almost never see that unless it's Tywin, who has yeah. some sort of magical control over Tyrion, right? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And, well, the the modus operandi for 
bringing each other down in King's Landing is to be super passive aggressive about it, right? Like Tyrion's <laughs> used life, to dealing just in King's Landing and Varys and stuff like that is just to be like is to is to go th- about things really coyly and stuff like that. And instead, Oberyn just comes in and just right away hits Tyrion with the baby story, right? <laughs> yeah. Like, there's no dancing around. There's none of the game that Tyrion's used to uh, playing the political stuff. It's just going straight for the jugular. Yeah. And yeah, I agree totally. It throws Tyrion completely off guard. Yeah, and he tries to that. recover, but he's like, I've got Zalabar Zhou here and Philip Foote. So, <laughs> and this on. is my squire, Podrick. This is Pod. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I, I actually, you you uh, jumped over the reading of the Dornish nobles, but there was one in there, which is a house I would love to belong to. Oh. <laughs> I don't know if you can guess which one it is. Oh, I've got them all. It's, I've got uh, one about the tour. Ooh, no, it's 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 House Manwoody. Oh yeah. <laughs> One, great name. Two, their sigil is a crown skull on a black flag. What? Yeah, That's it's awesome. Like Jolly Roger kinda. Yeah. Uh, Manwoody. Yeah. You can see George just <laughs> chuckling to himself as he did that one. I'm gonna call this one Manwoody. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's pretty great. Down by the Danes, I think. Uh unless I'm mistaken. House man, Woody. Yeah. Um, fun fact: Did you guys have you guys heard of the little trivia about House Jordan of the Tor? No. That comes from. So I was perusing these different houses on the wiki, and House Jordan. Germ has apparently confirmed that this is an homage to Robert Jordan. Oh, cool. The Lord is called Trebor Jordan. Trebor being Robert spelled backwards. Jordan, of course, similar to Jordan. And they live, the land that they live in is called The Tor, which is oh, yeah. Robert Jordan's publisher. publisher. publisher yeah. 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 So Trevor <laughs> Jordan of The Tor. Isn't that kind of cool? That's that awesome. Cool. Yeah. Good find. What? I would never guess that. No. <laughs> I would have been like, George, are you stealing names of other authors? <laughs> uh, I want to express my Willis love again. Okay. He's just awesome. Uh yeah, <laughs> you broke you broke cute. my body in half. We can be friends. <sighs> I'm I, still I hear skeptical. You're a, a great lover of horse flesh as well. <laughs> yeah. Must be pen pals. <laughs> yeah. Until I hear Willis say, "Yeah, I'm buddies with Oberyn," I kind of think of it as Oberyn just trying to keep Tyrion on his toes. They're like, they? yeah, he and I we're we're friends now. We're totally buddies. Hmm. I don't know. I don't, I, there, there's. I mean, maybe, but there's a lot of lies he could have told that would be more believable. Mm-hmm. Like, if so, yeah. Kudos to Willis. Oberyn just doesn't seem like a liar to me. Found love in a hopeless place. Oh, it's a terrible <laughs> song. I don't know why I just said that. I didn't know it was a song. That's unforgivable. Um, unforgivable. <laughs> Unpardonable. I, I just don't think Oberyn seems like a liar. He just seems very straightforward, and the truth is what it is, and you can judge me or you cannot, and whatever. Agreed. If you want to fight me about it, I'll poison you. I see him as a game player, like Tyrion. I don't know. It's, it, it will it'd be interesting to learn more about Oberyn. And how That's the crazy the game. thing. A lot of talk about Willis, and we've, to this point, haven't seen him at all. Nothing. We just know he exists. How about... Um, I mean, it's clear that, that Oberyn has other things on his mind than the wedding, which is the... You know, presumed reason that all these people are showing up. 
Marcella is held, uh, mm-hmm. quote unquote, uh, well, I'll, I'll say she's held hostage. She's, uh, you know, a ward down there, right? She's yeah. being lent out. Fiance, um, sort of. Right, kind of. Pre-fiance. But maybe the, Manis- the Lannisters have misjudged the strength of this relationship, right? I mean, they, they've sent, essentially, the Martells have sent, I'll just call it an army. An army intent to, I, I, it seems like their intent is to instill some sort of disquiet, I'll say. Oberyn specifically himself wants justice. Uh, very clearly, that's why he's here. And they have one of the Crown's children in their quote-unquote care. Maybe, you know, we haven't learned a lot about Dorne until now. Maybe the Lannisters screwed up a little bit by, by sending Marcella down there. And Tyrion himself, specifically. Yeah, because anything Tyrion does now, um, he has to keep in mind. Any action he takes against the Martells yep. could have that implication. And it's if, one of those... If, if Oberyn doesn't a, get the justice he wants, what happens to Marcella, right? Right. And that's that's a tough situation because the reason Tyrion um, went did brokered the deal in the first place was to prevent the Martells from joining up with Renly, right? Yeah. Uh, and so you know it's kind of one of those things where in hindsight he's like, oh man, should I have done that? But could he have predicted that at the time? I don't know. It seemed like a good idea at the time. Many things do to Tyrion. Wow, this is the third episode in a row where Arya's been the last chapter. Right? Isn't that weird? Weird. Very. It's been weird. I don't actually like ending on her. It's usually right. bleak. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> a bit, a bit. A that bit. being said, Matt, please please take us into the black. Arya! On the foot! Horse face! Stick him with the pointy end! Arya! On the foot! Horse face, sticking with the pointy end. Ah. We open on a kind of break of day ambush by Beric Dondarrion and the rest of the Brotherhood Without Banners. Um, they are attacking a septry, which is occupied by a whole host of bloody mummers. Arya is with the Brotherhood fight. She only watches the battle and wishes she could be down there uh, and silently encourages her, the Brotherhood to kill every last one of the bloody mummers. Um, the battle ends up being relatively short. The the BWB light the Sceptre on fire with fire-tipped arrows, sussing all the BMs out into the open. That's right, I'm going to call the Bloody Mummers BMs, where they can quickly <laughs> be uh, dispatched by the awaiting Brotherhood. The surviving BMs were quickly tried and hanged naked in the typical manner of the Brotherhood for dealing with people. Uh, we're then deliciously treated to some of the mysteries of the Lightning Lord. As that night, Beric and Thoros fill Arya in on some of the circumstances surrounding Beric's mysterious ability to somehow stay alive. Um, Beric and Thoros reveal that he has now actually died and been brought back six times. Uh, Thoros insists it was due completely to the will of R'hllor and not from any of his own personal talent or ability. And the deaths that Beric died were hideous, like a mace to the side of the head. Uh, he was hung once. Uh, Gregor Clegane's dirk through one of his eyeballs. 
Um, not to mention the Sander Clegane meat cleaving clinic from the last Aria chapter. So each time he is brought back, Barrack reveals, he seems to have lost a bit of his identity, a bit of his memory even. Um, he no longer remembers his castle in the Dornish marches, nor his fiancée. Apparently he was engaged to be married. Um, it almost feels like he was born the first time Thoros brought him back and all of that was just from uh, some previous life that wasn't even his. So at this moment, I just had to bring this up because it's so heartbreaking. Uh, this reminder of Arya being a child when she, after hearing this story, she earnestly asks Thoros if he could bring back someone who had lost their head. Oh, uh, Thoros takes the long way around saying no, but in doing, he gives us some more insight into how Beric is brought back. So this was discussed in last uh, episode's Davos After Dark. But the first time Beric died, Thoros knelt to give him the last kiss. A ritualistic method of uh, mercy killing or also just kind of sending someone off right. Um, by essentially the priests, from what I can gather, blow fire into their bodies. Um, it is a common practice among red priests, but Thoros was surprised to find that for the first time that he was aware of, this act of uh, killing someone or whatever actually brought someone back to life. In this case, it was Beric, of course, and it had had that same effect five subsequent times. And so ends the fascinating look into Beric. The Lightning Lord promises to return Arya to her mother, um, saying that he would do it just out of the goodness of his heart, but he is he does admit that they'll take a ransom for her only because they need the money to help feed the small folk. A worthy cause. Another cool thing that happens in this chapter deals with Gendry. And no, it doesn't have anything to do with him and Arya possibly hitting it off. <laughs> so the subject of needing a blacksmith comes up, and Gendry, despite the obvious list of cons of joining up with an outlaw gang, insists that he wants to join the Brotherhood as a full-time member. And right then and there... Beric uh, rushes him to knighthood um, and knights him, evermore to be Sir Gendry of Hollow Hill. And that's where we get some of the vows of being a knight that, that Scott mentioned we'd get. At that very moment that J Gendry's knighted, they hear a raspy laugh coming from the doorway, which turns out to be, you guessed it, the king of all raspiness, Sander Clegane. Uh, you remember how Sandor feels about knights, and it turns out his feelings haven't changed much. Um, when questioned why he followed the Brotherhood, he replies that he wants his gold back, which the Brotherhood had taken and had already used to buy food for the starving. Don't worry, they'd given Sandor an IOU. Uh, a bit of back and forth ensues, with the Brotherhood eventually shooing Sandor off. Um, Thoros provides insight that Sandor is a dog without a master right now, and the gold they took from him is probably all that he really had left in the world. So this, of course, leaves the other Brotherhooders worried about him possibly uh, planning shenanigans while they were asleep or something. But Beric and Thoros both counsel strictly against killing the Hound, claiming that after that trial by combat, which Sandor won, it is apparent that the Lord of Light has a further purpose for him, and they shouldn't go around messing with that. So that's pretty much the whole chapter. Um, we get a little bit of insight into Arya's mind at the end that's kind of fascinating and I just wanted to bring up, particularly the feelings of abandonment she's experiencing from the men in her life. You know, her father, Yorin, Sirio, Yakin, 
Jochen, and now even Gendry ha- have left her. None seem to do so maliciously or with quote-unquote abandonment in mind, but all are gone nonetheless. And, uh, you know, Arya has to work through that along with a lot of other things in Arya's life that she has to work through. But that's kind of where the chapter ends. So, cool stuff? Yeah, that abandonment is uh, is something that she is not, like like, actively thinking about but you're right definitely has a significant influence on how she just keeps on trucking through mm-hmm. because no one sticks around but Gendry's leaving too it was nice of Gendry to apologize to her though yeah, yeah. and you know what she what she's been using to get through that abandonment and that uncertainty is that prayer right and the vengeance that she's trying to eventually exact and uh even that's fading a little bit right mm. she mentioned well she's get she's that, getting so close to salvation that uh she may put that aside for now maybe yeah that's a, that's an interesting argument yeah she's saying oh i'm getting you know i'm gonna be home i don't need i don't i can put that away i don't need it anymore that's an interesting uh mm-hmm. interesting argument i just think it's Unless... it's interesting to me it seems like that's reasonably common like how time kind of makes it sometimes it draws that draws that passion out for your revenge away right it seems like that's maybe happening a little bit yeah, yeah it did that for me <laughs> did it did didn't do it for oberon no didn't do it <laughs> no for oberon. no 16 years long time to, <laughs> to, yeah. to patiently i would say in this series it's not regular fingers. for that for time to help it seems like it hurts uh mm. Princess Bride, it doesn't help. Nope. But mm-hmm. uh, I don't know. Maybe, maybe, maybe the stakes matter. I no. I'll leave my personal story out of it. Uh, let's move on. Are you sure? Yes. <laughs> I think it will pale. There's a lot more to talk about. You're not in jail, so your revenge story probably isn't very good. You're right. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> no, my revenge story. Uh, ends with me forgetting the names of the people that I've sworn revenge on. Are you there serious? You yeah. yeah. I can't remember their names anymore. <laughs> I, oh, I sw- in fact, Oberin well, Matt was giving so us yeah, something. Yeah, you have to tell us what they did to you. Okay, f- first of all, so maybe this is how I exact my revenge on these people. Uh, I use our modest little podcast to make sure people never fly Liat Airlines. Never fly Liat Airlines if you're going to Jamaica or uh, any of the... Oh, any yeah, of island countries down there we we basically got bumped from our flight and it's more complicated than that but i'll leave out all the details um wasn't it your honeymoon too it was it was our honeymoon yeah and uh the guy the guy that was in charge at liad airlines there on uh on uh, the island was promised us that when we landed in saint martin which is where they were redirecting us that this other guy whose name i've now forgotten um but uh, promised us that he had been on the phone with this guy and that he would take care of us and um, just to get in touch with them when we landed. So, you know, first of all, we're pissed about our, you know, being bumped from our flight. We're trying to get to Puerto Rico so we miss, so we don't miss our connection. I mean, all sorts of craziness going on. We land in St. Martin where they had redirected us, and the guy that we had been told he had talked to that was going to take care of us wasn't even working that day. Hadn't had any conversations with this guy. Um, didn't know we were arriving at all. And we were forced to like make our own arrangements in a country we didn't know anything about. Um, 
no one was expecting us. We didn't have any place to stay. It was a, it was a wreck. And so I actually wrote down the Ooh. names of these people um, that had lied to me. Uh, and I have it somewhere. It's an account like, of Monte Cristo. Yeah, on the like the back of a plane ticket. I have it somewhere. While you were giving your chapter summary, I'm, I'm at my desk. I was like, maybe it's here because I don't know where I put it. Uh, and I just kind of quickly looked around while I was sitting here listening to your chapter summary. And I couldn't find it. But uh, yeah, I've forgotten the names. David maybe was one of them. I don't know. Point is, I think sometimes that revenge does kind of fade a little bit, right? Yeah. Uh, no. <laughs> the, the lesson in this story is don't just write stuff down on a piece of paper. Carve it into your flesh. <laughs> <laughs> and, then, and then the fire will burn until <laughs> vengeance has been yeah. met. We're going to start calling you Skedward Dantes. Yes. <laughs> that isn't the name I'll take. Uh, what did you guys end up doing? Where did you stay? On uh, the street. I mean, it, that's a reasonably long story. So you know, you know, like sometimes when you go places, they make you tell them where you're staying yeah. before they let you through, like customs and stuff. Like cause they want to know you're not gonna like sneak away and like become a citizen and do all these other things. They want to know where you're gonna be yep. so they can get in touch with you. We didn't have any mm-hmm. place. We literally had no idea where we were staying, or I didn't even know the name of a single hotel. I could have guessed Hilton, I suppose. But, um, so I told them, I I don't know where we're staying or how long. And they're like, uh, we're not letting you through. And so, so we're just kind of stuck there and, um, they'd already taken my passport. They wouldn't give that back. So I had no passport. I had been told that this guy was around that could help us. And I said, look, this guy's going to help us. Can I just talk to him and he can tell us where, tell you where we're staying. And he talked to a guy that sent us on and all these things. She's like, yeah, go ahead, but I'm keeping your passport. So I got sent back across the other side of St. Martin without a passport. So now I couldn't get back through anywhere and uh, then found out that the guy didn't exist. We went through a series of infuriating phone calls with Liat and trying to get something done and ended up getting, we got put up at a really shady hotel where we like heard very, very sketchy noises uh, all night, did not sleep much got a flight uh, to Puerto Rico and Delta was awesome. They like honored our flights and gave us free flights uh, and took care of us. But they were like two days late and we're pretty terrified. We did have one great dinner that night before we stayed at that really crappy hotel. And uh, it was a memory we'll always have, but uh, it was. Wow. On your honeymoon. Yeah. Brutal. Yeah. It was, yeah, it was pretty awful. Anyway, edit most of that out. I don't think our listeners care about any of it. <laughs> Although, you know, maybe you guys are interested, but yeah. I'll see on the re-listen how bad it is. Yeah, it's probably going to be pretty painful. <laughs> what about Dendarian? Can we talk about Dendarian and this weird zombie-like life he has? Oh, it's pretty tragic, huh? Weird. Yeah. It doesn't seem right. Uh, well, the, All of it? All of it. Yeah, yeah. it seems bad. It seems... It seems it seems wrong. It's just something about it stinks. It seems like a scary spiral to get thrown into, right? Yeah. Oh, to be brought back to life six times? Like that they just I keep doing it and each I, time it's getting further and further away from being Barrack. There's there's a there's a great story, I guess, in this really popular modern religion about this guy who gets brought back to life. <laughs> and I mean millions if not billions of people are really into it so i'm into this one i'm into i'm into (laughs) it 
Okay, <laughs> um, but in but, this story, I, I don't know what story you're talking about, so I'll just have to ask you point blank. In this story, does the person okay. that gets brought back, does he act very strangely and not have memories and um, not act like who he was before? Well, um, I would argue that like Beric Dondarrion, he is an incorruptible and morally upstanding zombie. So there's that. But uh, as far as the memory thing, uh, the stories, testaments, that's what they're called. Ah, the testaments are not super clear on all the details. So I'm not sure. There's nothing coming from him specifically. It was just guys around him. So... Oh, like here. Hence like the here. appeal of Mormonism. <laughs> we got all sorts of stuff. Oh boy. Uh, <laughs> it's not <laughs> it's not even a moral thing to me. It's like um it it's like I feel nobody knows what's really going on. Right. And they're going through these motions and it like they don't maybe know the consequences of their of what they're doing, maybe. They know it like, works, so they're continuing to do it. Right. But but what but, what is, what is yeah. What's the result? I mean, so I'll use an example. So uh, you brought up Jordan uh, earlier, Matt. I read a series called The Deathgate Cycle, which is by uh, Margaret Weiss and Tracy Hickman, I believe. Uh, quite a while ago I read it. But part of that, in, in that series, they bring one, one of, there's many planets in this whole series of, I think it's seven or eight books. And uh, on one of the planets, the people have learned this magic that brings back their dead as somewhat reanimated corpses, they're less capable than Barrack for sure. Um, but they can like perform menial tasks and do stuff. And it's one of the ways that this uh, culture survives in a very harsh climate that they live in. But what they don't know is that every time they do that, every time they bring back uh, one of these people as husks of themselves, they're actually stealing a soul from another planet that they know nothing about. And I, I'm, obviously I don't think it's anything that tragic no. in this case, but, like, they're messing with powers I don't think they understand. And Barrick's state indicates that to me. Like, he's not who he was. He's he's weirded out. He doesn't know. He is, in fact, I think he is dead. Because uh, when when he asks him if, if, if death is so sweet to him, Thoris asks him that. Like, do you want death? He doesn't respond like it's something that's coming. He says, sweet? No, it's not sweet. He knows death. He is dead right now, and he's in mm. this weird plane where he's straddling both. Well, he's experienced death six times. Yeah, but I... So he knows it's not sweet. I think he is dead right now. In some sort of weird combo plane, weird world. Yeah, it's weird. I'm glad he uh, doesn't remember, because, oh man, if he came back with memories of what being dead was like, that would be even scarier. Yeah. I don't like to think about it. It's weird because he seems to uh, he seems to have personality wise like his personality and values and stuff like that seem to have persevered with him throughout yep. Yep. all these comebacks but it's the actual memories that have seemed to have left him and that's interesting. Yeah. Things well maybe did, it's like Scad and and remembering the names of the people who have wronged him. Yeah. <laughs> It's just not worth remembering anymore. Yeah, maybe. He's very singularly focused now, and that's all that matters. Yeah, mm-hmm. he's like alive he's for one task, reason. And that's the only yeah, thing. Yeah, that's, that's what he's there to do. So yeah. he doesn't require memories uh, from his past life to accomplish that. Yeah. I took a little bit of issue with uh, the 
Uh, I would forgo the ransom, but I won't bit. It's like, there's nothing, there's absolutely nothing stopping you from foregoing the ransom. I would forgo it just based on the nobleness of how great a man your father was, but I'm not going to. Yeah, we need the money. He's singular purpose right now. Mm-hmm. We need the cash. He's an outlaw. He's a brigand. Okay, you guys uh, good to uh, move on to Davos After Dark? Yeah. Uh, oh, I found a mistake in this chapter. It's got to be a mistake. What? What? Yeah. George doesn't make mistakes. No, yeah, infallible. Poking yeah. stuff. Yeah. So, after Sandor leaves, and they have their little exchange, and he goes, uh, Harwin says, I best go see what he did to our sentries. And then it says, Harwin took a wary look out the door, and then he left. So, then they continue the conversation inside without him, right? Mm-hmm. And Angie starts talking. And he talks about how he won the archers tournament and and used all the his winnings on prostitutes, and then the next line is pissed it all away. Did you? Laughed, Harwin. Hmm. But Harwin just left. So I thought, well, maybe he came back and it just didn't tell us that he came back in the room, even though it's only like a paragraph later that he says that. But no. Then on like the next page or something, it mentions that Harwin came back. So. Whoa! Little mistake. Good catch. Whoa! Uh, I think good I speak catch. for the three of us and all of George's fans as saying, "I quit. I'm not reading another page." Yep. Or <laughs> we need to call for George's editor's head and put me in <laughs> their place. <laughs> wow! <laughs> I got this. That Don't would be George. great. Yeah, there wouldn't be a, a single raped widow <laughs> window. <laughs> raped window. <laughs> <laughs> or, or misplaced as long as they don't put me in charge there won't be any raped windows <laughs> but on the subject real Good quick catch. of Sandra just real quick um, it, this is probably will get me less support than the support Brooke and I gave Scott about his theory with Edmir and Rob um, Sandor coming back we know that Sandor at least I think he likes to be on a leash right um, I don't know that he likes it, but it's what he's used to. He's used to being commanded and fulfilling those commands. And now he doesn't have that. He's he's not in anyone's employ. And I wonder if he's a little lost. And I wonder if he was following the Brotherhood Without Banners because inside he actually wants to join up with them. What do you guys think? Just to have something to be a part of. But he doesn't know how to like ask nicely if he can join up. Because he's just Sandor Clegane. He's raspy and rotten. I'll pass on the theory. Hard pass? But, well, I think, I think he is looking for his next meal. He's looking for his next engagement, but I, I don't think he's hoping it's these guys. I, I think the, the way they're doing the knighting and stuff and, and, uh, and holding knighthoods in, in, regard, in high regard and everything, I think that just pisses him off. I don't think he's. Mm-hmm. I don't think he has any interest in these guys, and does actually think they're outlaws. Putting it out into the ether. It's better than my theory. Yeah, debatable. <laughs> maybe, maybe some small part of him, but yeah, I agree with Scad. That's the just the fundamentals are go way against what he believes. Fair enough. Carry on. All right. Thanks everyone for joining us. Now it's time to enter the realm of book spoilers in a segment we like to call Davos After Dark. If you don't want to be spoiled for future books, please smash the device you're listening to using this to listen to. And join us next week for brand three, 
John 5, Danny 4, Arya 8, and Jamie 6, which is chapters 40 to 44, according to the Wiki of Ice and Fire. Also, if you like the musical character introductions throughout this cast, know that these are original compositions written and performed by our very own Matt. And you can download these plus a full-length John song on We Are Davos, uh, wearedavosfingers.bandcamp.com or follow the link on our website, davosfingers.com. Uh, now it's time for some Davos After Dark. Davos After Dark. So uh, can we talk about the leeches first? Mm, mm-hmm. Why not? Delicious. That shit works. It works. It worked <laughs> Did <great>. it? <laughs> <laughs> well... they did all die (laughs) they did (laughs) if that's what they wanted then yeah here's what i think and i think this is backed up i think there's well i don't know if it's backed up but i don't think that this is an original thought i think that other people think this as well melisandra saw that uh these three guys would die yeah. I don't know how clearly she saw it, or even if she saw the method that they would die, but she saw that Balon, <clears throat> Renly, and Joffrey would die. So, um, You mean Balon, Rob, and... Who did I say? Did I say Renly? Renly? Sorry. That's okay. Those three usurpers that she mentioned at the end of her chapter. Uh, so I think that she comes up with this blood leeches trick, parlor trick, which you know she's uh, akin to do um, as a way of just demonstrating power to Stannis, getting her, getting him to believe in her even more to the point that one day he will relent and give her Edric Storm or whatever else she might want to awake the stone dragon. I buy that, except except it means that all the Edric stuff really, really is a ruse in that moment, right? Because she knows she doesn't need Edric. Mm-hmm. To make these guys die, they're going to do it anyway. So all she needs is a ruse. So she's bluffing that she's going to kill Edric, assuming that Stannis is going to stop her? Because having Edric now won't help her, right? Well, she thinks it's the king's blood that she thinks Edric has that will awaken the stone dragon. And that's what she's wanting Edric for. Yeah. And so this whole King's thing is just a way of getting Stannis to finally relent and go, okay, she really is powerful. The leech thing worked. Oh, I, I need to awake these stone dragons, and that's got to be... So if he had said, Edric, yes, so do it. go ahead and kill Edric, and she used it to wake the stone dragons, it would have had nothing to do with killing the usurpers? She just would have used it for the fight against the Great Other? Yes. Okay, I see. So you're they're unrelated in any way, really. Other than right. the fact that it's happening at the same time. Yeah, I guess I'll buy that. Uh, and about... John, if he is yeah. Rhaegar's son, just on the stone dragon thing, if John is Rhaegar's son, he would have King's blood. And Melisandre is awful close to John right now, so that could be interesting. I don't know if Melisandre yet knows that John is Rhaegar's, if I... he is. Yeah. She's going to, like, uh, grab the snow by his bleeding body and make a snow cone and just eat it all up. <laughs> <laughs> I hate snow cones. They're so messy. Yeah, they're overrated. Uh, Big time. What they see in the fires is snow, and it could possibly be Jon Snow, and all of her sightings of Jon Snow in her like future flame interpretations. I totally forgot about seeing this. 
Like, uh, so it started way back when. Yeah. Which is interesting. Totally. We focus on that Melisandre POV chapter a lot, right? And we forget yeah. this stuff. Yeah. Super interesting. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So everybody has now read Night of the Seven Kingdoms. And there is a going theory that Brienne might be related to Sir Duncan. Mm-hmm. And one one of the uh, and I forget who who made note of this this for a discussion. One of the possible clues is that uh, Duncan uh, often says says to himself, "Dunk the lunk, thick as a castle wall." And in the Jamie chapter, Jamie when he apologizes to Brienne, Brienne's like, "Are you mocking me?" He's like, "Are you as thick as a castle wall?" <gasps> Which is, Sort of a direct quote. But of course, Jamie wouldn't know her parentage or <laughs> what Duncan was telling himself or in his what, head. Yeah. So, yeah. But uh, it might be it might be just a, a little bit of a troll by, by Gurm. Because uh, it, it kind of adds up. I mean, they were both light-haired and very tall and very... Yeah, physically. Earnest, I suppose. There's another big... There, well, big-ish um, uh, evidence for this theory. Um, Brienne in I think it's a feast for crows. Yeah, it has to be. She gets a new shield, right? And she she's getting it painted, and she tells the person to paint it after the manner of a shield she saw in her father's armory back at Tarth. Mm-hmm. And that shield, although faded, um, she remembers some details on it that it had green leaves and a falling star, among other things, similar to. Dunk's shield that he has okay. in uh, the Hedge Knight, but that shield Yay! of Dunk's does get destroyed, right? Well, he could have had others made because he kind of yeah. stuck with that sigil after. So yeah, it might sure. not have been that exact same shield, but he kind of stuck with that sigil of the tree and the falling star. No, it's a good one. It would be great if yeah. she was a descendant. Just the fact that she found an old shield and had it repainted—that kind of parallels Dunk's story. Uh, other yes. things like a uh, pod and. Podrick Payne and Aegon tailing, you know, Podrick kind of followed Brienne, Aegon kind of followed Duncan. Like there's little tiny parallels that could be just be coincidence, but could also be part of, you know, a grander reveal. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm, 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 I'm much more intrigued by the narrative similarities, uh, you know, pa- painting their journeys to be similar um, as, as uh, I don't know if it's evidence, but it's fun. Right. Yeah, it's fun, and I don't, just I, don't, I don't know enough about Tarth, and even I haven't even done the math on like the timing of when Dunk was around and what that would have meant, like because unless Brienne's a bastard, she is her father's son, so he would have had to ingratiate himself into the bloodline of Tarth somehow to yeah, found a Tarthy. Yeah, it's, and he I was mean, a member of the King's like so he wasn't supposed to. Not everyone's Barristan Selmy. Nope. God, if only. Yeah. The blue balls on that guy. Oh, boy. (laughs) (laughs) Scott, you made a good point about uh, Thoros. Uh, He kind of is a throwaway line claiming that the Lord of Light is not yet done with the Hound. And uh, obviously he's not. But you also mentioned (laughs) Clegan Bowl. Clegan Bowl? Yeah. Can you explain that? Clegane Bowl. Clegane Bowl is a, a theory... I think we've talked about it before. It's just a people hope that uh, the hound will be uh, showing up 
in King's Landing to do battle with uh, Robert Strong, who everyone is pretty convinced is um, Gregor Clegane, uh, to have the battle for Circe's trial. Um, and some people call that Clegane Bowl. Because the it's two Cleganes two squaring off. Squaring off. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, people want that to happen. I, I don't... Uh, the, the way it would go is because... Because... Uh, because the hound is now a part of the faith, right? Because that's him on the the uh, the aisle. Is that aisle called the Quiet Aisle? Oh, he's dead. Remember what the elder brother said? Right. He's oh, dead. sorry. I mean, because he's dead. Um, <laughs> he's not dead. Uh, he's now God. part of the faith, and so the faith would use him as their uh, their champion. And Cersei is out of champions, and so would use this monster that Kyburn has created, um, and. Uh, because I think he's, is he, did they make him a knight officially now? Or is this, it's all mixing together for me, I've forgotten. But, uh, that she'd use him and, and the Faith would use the Hound and we'd get our, uh, we'd get the Hound's long-awaited grudge match with his brother. But no, I, I'm, I, I'm, my point was that I don't think that's what this is. I mean, I don't know that R'hllor would care at all about Clegane Bowl or Cersei's Trial or anything. What R'hllor cares about is the fight against the Great Other. And if, if R'hllor has some sort of desire for the Hound to be around still, it would mean he's got something to do with the engagement uh, going on up north, or you know, in some way, in some way affecting that engagement. But maybe, but maybe that's yeah. already happened. Maybe, maybe what what R'hllor needed him to survive for was how he moves Arya along on her journey, right? And you know, that's already happened in what we've what we've read by the time. Uh, the Dance with Dragons finishes, right? Mm. Well, that's a really good point. And the fact that, you know, Sanders got this long-standing fear of fire, which we all are kind of assuming that, uh, you know, the, the guys who are on the fire side of the Song of Ice and Fire are kind of the quote-unquote good guys fighting against the others at the end, right? Um, and you have to wonder if that fear of fire will play into Sanders' Uh, allegiances or where he falls in that battle and that could just be a really cool kind of completion to his arc if he's able to overcome that and or something mm. i don't know That's a great point. Through. that would be cool um, I, I wonder how much satisfaction he would take from fighting his brother when the mountain has become sir robert strong is basically just like animatronic knight yeah, it's we, not quite the same, right? Yeah. Do we know much about how much the mountain knows or is Gregor? Well, we know he he doesn't talk. Yeah. We know he doesn't sleep, eat, or piss, I believe. Mm. And I so I think he's pretty much just like a like puppet, and Kyburn is the puppet master. Does Beric do those but, things? Uh, he doesn't they do eat say that or sleep. doesn't sleep, and that that he doesn't need to eat. That sometimes he does, but he doesn't need to, right? right? No, he just drinks wine. He doesn't eat at all. So wait a minute. So is Kyburn? Has Kyburn made the mountain in a similar way that Beric has been revived? In which case, maybe Rolor is interested in keeping the Hound around to defeat. Gregor in Clegane Bowl because Kyburn is using the Lord's Kiss or the what is it called the 
the no the last kiss. The last kiss in the wrong. The Lord's way. kiss is what John does. Yeah, the Lord's kiss is what John does. <laughs> hopefully, hopefully, Kyburn's doing that to the mountain as well. Let's all picture that. Probably. <laughs> um, that would be an interesting twist, though. I I get the feeling like Relor or people who are able to wield this magic, it's bestowed upon them. Yeah. Um, like. Like, it wouldn't just, like, accidentally happen or it couldn't be stolen. Well, no, maybe it could be stolen. I don't know. Maybe maybe there is no focused, like, it's just, it's just like, with the, the birth of the dragons, there's just this magical energy everywhere, and it gets sucked up by It's not being controlled by... People. Yeah, it's not being... Like, like a god. Regulated right? by a god, yeah. An omnipotent being. Dude, no, that's, yeah. That's a, that's a very, very far-reaching, uh, far, far-fetched theory but that's write it up yeah write it up <laughs> is the hound spared because relore wants to oh it's too long to even say <laughs> yeah what would be your title to that one uh <sighs> i think i would i think i would title it something with uh san san in it just so i'd get more traffic sure mm, good call yeah hot kiss for san san yeah hot kiss from san san yeah yeah, yeah. that's good stuff yeah um, speaking of far far fetched theories, um, oh jeez, <laughs> Matt, you had one about <laughs> Willis <laughs> Oberyn Martell. This makes me want to unfriend you. <laughs> Why? This this, uh, this sounds like a very happy together. Story, but uh, I want to hear you. Maybe ya. they're banging. It makes me want to unfriend you because Oberyn's a dick and Willis is awesome. Yeah. <laughs> Maybe that's what brings them together. Oberyn's dick? Yep. Walk us through for the listeners, because I think there's not much to, to walk the through. Thing now. It's just that Willis isn't married yet, and maybe Loras takes after his big brother, and Willis is gay. And, you know, maybe Oberyn went to chat with him back when he injured him, and maybe say sorry or whatever. And one thing led to another, and there you go. <laughs> and ever since, it's just yes. been this well, magical relationship. So to lend, to lend some, uh, well, to lend some possibility, uh, we do. You'll know notice that, I'm laughing as I say this, right? We do I'm know that the Dornish are much more open with their sexual relationships, right? Exactly. Yeah. Um, Oberyn could be down for something like that. Absolutely. It's, it's well, there's no arguing that Oberyn isn't down cool for something with dudes. like that. <laughs> but we've talked yeah. before of why isn't Willis married yet? Yeah, he's got a very legitimate claim, it's which is step because... one to getting married in this kingdom, right? Yeah. Well, I think there I think would be his... women that would be falling at his feet, or fathers of women yeah. who would be falling at Willis's feet to get him married to their daughter, just because oh. he's the future lord yeah. of Highgarden. Yeah, but Olena's cagey, man. His injury would have nothing to do with it. Yeah, but Olena knows that. I mean, Olena, Olena's cagey. She wants, she wants the best for her house. Forget Willis. He can wait and get married whenever. Right? Huh. Yeah. It's it's just like Hoster and Edmir. Like they're just saving their heirs for like yeah. the most prime, the perfect situation. Yeah. And the what most would be more perfect than Oberyn? Yeah, that, it's like when a team holds on to the guy they're going to trade till the last five minutes of the trade deadline to just totally 
get that desperate taker, yeah. that perfect deal. Yeah, but or or he's totally gay balls for over in Martell. That's yeah, yeah. or that's definitely. Yeah. Another less fun thought I had is that maybe Oberyn and Willis have been scheming to get Willis and Ariane married eventually. But that's not as fun. It's not is as this the first time I've ever heard you say her name? That's how you say her name? Uh, Ariane, yes. Hmm. I'm sticking mm-hmm. to it. All right. I say it how I want. How do you say it? I just say Ariane. Yeah, yeah. me too. But oh, I don't have any evidence that that's correct. I just, whenever I hear someone that differs with me, I assume they're wrong. Yeah, I think I default to the Portuguese when I see things like that because uh, a n n e at the end of a name in Portuguese, which is mildly common, is ani. So I think I default to the Portuguese instead of just defaulting yeah. to the English, which is your native tongue, which, which I spoken for my whole life, <laughs> rather than just a period of a couple of years that I spoke it. <laughs> uh, yeah, who knows? Yeah, well. In ev- uh, as as evidence, uh, George supposedly used to say Brienne, so for Brienne, so you know maybe oh, you got us in there. You oh. pulled that out of your butt. I did not. I, that <laughs> that's is better not to be true. No, that's somewhere. That that is out there. I did not make that up. I'm never saying it like that. Brutal. Brutal. Yeah. Brutal. Um. Any other theories or points you guys were dying to discuss? Nope. Uh. Nope. Let's freaking wrap this up. All right. Nice. There's plenty of stuff to discuss, but with the prospect of wrapping it up in front of me, I'm like, yeah. <laughs> Not that I haven't had fun, but we had some. We yeah, we had some good uh, chapter by chapter conversations and some good tangents. Yay. Yeah. All right. Thanks everybody for listening and tuning in. Uh, we'll see you in three weeks. For now, this is Brooke signing off, saying. How many Dornishmen does it take to stir a pot? Eight. Seven to hold up the pot and spin it around the eighth guy holding onto a spoon. <laughs> what? <laughs> oh, man. This is Matt signing off with my typical, in my typical fashion of nothing to do with the actual episode. I'm just going to quote Gandalf and say all we have to do is decide what to do with the time that is given to us. I'll go back to the episode question. How many Dornishmen uh, does it take to stir a pot? And I'll say it only takes one. His name is Oberyn. But the Dornish sent thousands anyway. Well, only 300 for now. Oh, 300. Sorry. Yeah. 300. That's okay. Might as well. 300 guys all like gathered around the pot. Everyone jostling to stir it. Okay. Some people throwing in spices. They're they're (laughs) going to stir it Ouija board style. It's going to be a... I see pot. All right. Okay. Sticking their fingers in. Good night. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And good night. (laughs) Good night. See you guys. Bye. Bye. She says she knows that he's not perfect. But when you add it all up, then it's worth it. She was sorry at the ending. She was lazy with her lies. But she was sick of scrounging around. Just barely getting by And the last thing she said to me Before she hung up the phone Was here he comes Oh God, I gotta go So my question is, can you hear me okay? Yeah. Yeah, you sound super clear. Great. Yeah. You sound a little down, but you sound clear.
Maybe you're just <laughs> sedated or working through your settings while you're talking. I don't know. Yeah, I was just working through my settings. All right. It's kind of a constant sense of sedation with Brooke. <laughs> God. <laughs> I'm sure Listen, she appreciates I that. I don't need vague criticisms after three seconds of conversation, okay? Here's <laughs> uh, amplifying the situation. How are you guys doing? Uh, I'm okay. <laughs> Talk about down. Sound kind of down. You guys look like you uh, sound like you were having fun together in the uh, in the Great White North. It had nothing to do. With you not being there. you got, How much fun you guys had had nothing to do with me <laughs> yeah. not being there. Well. Appreciate it. <laughs> I can only imagine what would have happened had all three of us been there. It would have been crazy fun. It would have been awesome. I, I, I hope we it's were... fun. Does it, do, do either of you harbor any fear that uh, when Brooke comes in uh, October, and yeah, I'm still planning that that's going to happen. When Brooklyn comes in October and we actually get all three of us together again, it's super awkward for some reason. <laughs> I have zero fears about Not that. Not worried at all. <laughs> all right, good. Wouldn't that be awful? It was, it was so bad. We were laughing so hard in the restaurant. I was afraid to look around because I knew that we were going to be like glared at the way I glare at families who bring children to restaurants without children's menus. <laughs> Did you see the Twitter call? You probably didn't. Some guy came on Twitter, not a guy that I had ever seen comment to us before, and right. I think he had kind of just started listening to the show, or at least I hope he had. <laughs> and he he commented about how how something like my swearing seemed forced, and like yeah. I didn't know how to swear right. Right. And I took immense of- offense to that because it's one of the things I hate most is people that don't know how to swear correctly and still do it. And uh, it got to me for like a day and a half. It bothered me that. Maybe it's not natural when I swear. You've been practicing on your family? <laughs> well, it's just living is what we call it, but yeah. I think you swear wonderfully. Both yeah. of you do. Thanks. I'm going to... I had never noticed, but I'm going to pay special attention for every... Well, no, if you never notice, that means now. it's going perfectly. Because mm-hmm. you shouldn't never notice. Very, very natural, just yeah. flowing right out of you. Right. All that vitriol. Right. Okay. Uh, mm. One of the guy voices. One of the guy. I'm one of. We've the... actually had people say that about us before. One of the guys. I don't remember who said this. <laughs> yeah. You guys do have fairly distinctive voices, or at least different enough from each other. That, I think it's but... more. I think it's more like uh, we think pretty similarly on most stuff, and so mm-hmm. it's it's not it's not a matter of uh, not knowing the voices as much as it is we're the same <laughs> we have the same opinions so they just can't keep it keep them separate right i think a lot mm, of it's that. you keep hoping that you don't think we have a lot of the same opinions i do we differ on jamie thank you guys come i think you guys come at your appreciation for the books from different directions and maybe i hear that more because i hear it like every two weeks but <laughs> <laughs> I think there's a major difference, but oh. yeah, to the to the lay person, you're probably just two heads on one body. Mm-hmm.